Chapter Thirty, Part Two, of Run to Earth, a novel, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. Chapter Thirty, Found Wanting, Part Two. Sir Reginald Eversleigh and Douglas Dale met at the Phoenix Club soon after Reginald's interview with Madame Dursky. Douglas met his cousin with a quiet and courteous manner in which there was no trace of unfriendly feeling a manner that expressed so little of any feeling whatever as to be almost negative it was not so however with sir reginald he remembered victor carrington's advice as to the wisdom of a palpable estrangement between himself and his cousin and he took good care to act upon that counsel this course was indeed the only one that would have been at all agreeable to him he hated douglas dale with all the force of his evil nature as the innocent instrument of sir oswald's retribution upon the destroyer of mary goodwin he envied the young man the advantages which his own bad conduct had forfeited and he now had learned to hate him with redoubled intensity as the man who had supplanted him in the affections of paulina dursky the two men met in the smoking-room of the club at the most fashionable hour of the day nothing could have been more conspicuous than the haughty insolence of the spendthrift baronet as he saluted his wealthy cousin how is it that i have not seen you at my chambers in the temple eversleigh asked douglas in that calm tone of studied courtesy which expresses so little because i had no particular reason for calling on you and because if i had wished to see you i should scarcely have expected to find you in your temple chambers answered sir reginald if report does not belie you, you spend the greater part of your existence at a certain villa in Fulham. There was that in Sir Reginald Eversleigh's tone which attracted the attention of the men within hearing, almost all of whom were well acquainted with the careers of the two cousins, and many of whom knew them personally. Though the club loungers were too well-bred to listen, it was nevertheless obvious that the attention of all had been more or less aroused by the baronet's tone and manner. Douglas Dale answered in accents as audible, and a tone as haughty as the accents and tone of his cousin. "'Report is not likely to belie me,' he said, "'since there is no mystery in my life to afford food for gossip. "'If by a certain villa at Fulham you mean Hilton House, you are not mistaken.' I have the honour to be a frequent guest at that house. It is an honour which many of us have enjoyed, answered Reginald with a sneer. An honour which I used to find deuced expensive by Jove, exclaimed Viscount Caversham, who was standing near Douglas Dale. That was at the time when Sir Reginald Eversleigh usurped the position of host in Madame Dursky's house, replied Douglas. You would find things much changed there now, Caversham, were the lady to favour you by an invitation. When Madame Dursky first came to England, she was so unfortunate as to fall into the hands of evil counsellors. She has learned since to know her friends from her enemies. She is a very charming woman, drawled the Viscount laughingly. But if you want to keep a balance at your banker's dale, I should strongly advise you to refuse her hospitality. "'Madame Dursky will shortly be my wife,' replied Douglas, in a voice loud enough to be heard by the bystanders. "'And the smallest word, calculated to cast a slur on her fair fame, will be an insult to me, an insult which I shall know how to resent.' 
This announcement fell like a thunderbolt in the assembly of fashionable idlers. All knew the history of the house at Fulham. They knew of Paulina Dursky only as a beautiful but dangerous siren, whose fatal smiles lured men to their ruin. That Douglas Dale should unite himself to such a woman seemed to them little short of absolute madness. Love must be strong indeed, which will face the ridicule of mankind unflinchingly. Douglas Dale knew that in redeeming Paulina from her miserable situation, in elevating her to a position that many blameless and well-born Englishwomen would have gladly accepted, he was making a sacrifice which the men amongst whom he lived would condemn as the act of a fool. But he was willing to endure this, painful though it was to him, for the sake of the woman he loved. Better that I should have the scorn of shallow-brained worldlings than that the blight on her life should continue, he said to himself. When she is my wife, no man will dare to question her honour. No woman will dare to frown upon her when she enters society leaning on my arm. This is what Douglas Dale repeated to himself very often during his courtship of Paulina Dursky. This is what he thought as he stood erect and defiant in the crowded room of the Pall Mall Club, facing the curious looks of his acquaintances. After the first shock, there was a dead silence. No voice murmured the commonplace phrases of congratulation, which might naturally have followed such an announcement. If Douglas Dale had just announced that some dire misfortune had befallen him, the faces of the men around him could not have been more serious. No one smiled. No one applauded his choice. Not one voice congratulated him on having won for himself so fair a bride. That ominous silence told Douglas Dale how terrible was the stigma which the world had set upon her he so fondly loved. The anguish which rent his heart during those few moments is not to be expressed by words. After that most painful silence, he walked to the table at which it was his habit to sit, and began to read a newspaper. Sir Reginald watched him furtively for a few moments in silence, and then left the room. After this, the two cousins met frequently, but they never spoke. They passed each other with the coldest and most ceremonious salutation. The idlers of the club perceived this and commented on the fact. "'Douglas Dale and his cousin are not on speaking terms,' they said. "'They have quarrelled about that beautiful Austrian widow, at whose house there used to be such high play. In Paulina's society, Douglas tried to forget the cruel shadow which darkened and which, in all likelihood, would forever darken her name, and while in her society he contrived to banish from his mind all bitter thought of the world's harsh verdict and cruel condemnation. But away from Paulina, he was tortured by the recollection of that scene at the Phoenix Club, tormented by the thought that, let him make what sacrifice he might, he could never wipe out the stain which those midnight assemblies of gamesters had left on his future wife's reputation. We will leave England forever after the marriage, he said to himself sometimes. We will make our home in some fair Italian city, where my Paulina will be respected and admired as if she were a queen, as well as the loveliest and sweetest of women. If he asked Paulina where their future life was to be spent, she always replied to him in the same manner. Wherever you take me, I shall be content, she said. I can never be grateful enough for your goodness. I can never repay the debt I owe you. Let our future be your planning, not mine. And you have no wish, 
"'No fancy that I can realize, Paulina? "'None. "'From my earliest girlhood I have sighed for only one blessing. "'Peace. "'You have given me that. "'What more can I ask at your hands? "'Ah, Douglas, I fear my love has already cost you too dearly. "'The world will never forgive you for your choice. "'You, who might make so brilliant a marriage.' Her generous feelings once aroused, Paulina could be almost as noble as her lover. Again and again she implored him to withdraw his promise, to leave, and to forget her. "'Believe me, Douglas, our engagement is a mistake,' she said. "'Consider this before it is too late. You are a proud man, where honour is concerned, and the past life of her whom you marry should be without spot or blemish. It is not so with me.' If I have not sinned as other women have sinned, I have stooped to be the companion of gamblers and roués. I have allowed my house to become the haunt of reckless and dissipated men. Society revenges itself cruelly upon those who break its laws. Society will neither forget nor forgive my offence. I do not live for society but for you, Paulina, replied Douglas passionately. You are all the world to me. Let me never hear these arguments again, unless you would have me think that you are weary of me, and that you only want an excuse for getting rid of me. Weary of you, exclaimed Paulina, my friend, my benefactor, how can I ever prove my gratitude for your goodness, your devotion? By learning to love me a little, answered Douglas tenderly. The lesson ought not to be difficult, Paulina murmured. Could she do less than love this noble friend? this pure-minded and unselfish adorer. He came to her one day, accompanied by a solicitor, but before introducing the man of law, he asked for a private interview with Paulina, and in this interview gave her a new proof of his devotion. In thinking much of our position, dearest, I have been struck with a sudden terror of the uncertainty of life. What would be your fate, Paulina, if anything were to happen, if, well, if I were to die suddenly, as men so often die in this high-pressure age, before marriage had united our interests, what would be your fate, alone and helpless, assailed once more by all the perplexities of poverty, and perhaps subject to the mean spite of my cousin, Reginald Eversleigh, who does not forgive me for having robbed him of his place in your heart, little as he was worthy of your love? "'Oh, Douglas!' exclaimed Paulina. "'Why do you imagine such things? "'Why should death assail you?' "'Why, indeed, dearest,' returned Douglas with a smile, "'do not think that I anticipate so sad a close to our engagement. "'But it is the duty of a man to look sharply out "'for every danger in the pathway of the woman he is bound to protect. "'I am a lawyer, remember, Paulina, "'and I contemplate the future with the eye of a lawyer. "'So far as I can secure you from even the possibility of misfortune, "'I will do it.' I have brought a solicitor here to-day, in order that he may read you a will, which I have this morning executed in your favour. A will? repeated Madame Dursky. You are only too good to me, but there is something horrible to my mind in these legal formalities. That is only a woman's prejudice. It is the feminine idea that a man must needs be at the point of death when he makes his will. And now, let me explain the nature of this will, continued Douglas. I have told you that if I should happen to die without direct heirs, the estate left me by Sir Oswald Eversleigh will go to my cousin Reginald. 
that estate from which is derived my income, I have no power to alienate. I am a tenant for life only. But my income has been double, and sometimes treble my expenditure, for my habits have been very simple, and my life only that of a student in the temple. My sole extravagance, indeed, has been the collection of a library. I have, therefore, been able to save twelve thousand pounds, and this sum is my own to bequeath. I have made a will, leaving this amount to you, Paulina, charged only with a small annuity to a faithful old servant, together with my personal property, consisting only of a few good Italian pictures, a library of rare old books, and the carvings and decorations of my rooms, all valuable in their way. This is all the law allows me to give you, Paulina, but it will, at least, secure you from want. Madame Dursky tried to speak, but she was too deeply affected by this new proof of her lover's generosity. Tears choked her utterance. She took Douglas Dale's hand in both her own and lifted it to her lips, and this silent expression of gratitude touched his heart more than the most eloquent speech could have affected it. He led her into the room where the attorney waited her. "'This gentleman is Mr. Horley,' he said, "'a friend and adviser, in whom you may place unbounded confidence. "'My will is to remain in his possession, "'and should any untimely fate overtake me, "'he will protect your interests. "'And now, Mr. Horley, will you be good enough "'to read the document to Madame Dursky, "'in order that she may understand "'what her position would be in case of the worst?' "'Mr. Horley read the will.' It was as simple and concise as the law allows any legal document to be, and it made Paulina Dursky mistress of twelve thousand pounds, and property equal to two or three thousand more, in the event of Douglas Dale's death. End of chapter 30, part 2